Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Look Back Podcast, a show where we explore the intersection between career and culture. Before we start, I just wanted to check in and ask, how are you? It's been a long three weeks for a lot of us. And I know we are tired, we are sad, we are motivated, and we're exhausted. But I hope you're taking time to heal and surround yourself with love because that is the only way we will be able to continue this fight and move forward. Today's guest is very topical. Chad Salter is my best friend and someone dedicated to making change. Since 2014, Chad has worked in the nonprofit sector and his experiences include the world-renowned Ford Foundation and time in Toronto, Canada as a Fulbright Fellow. During our chat, Chad explains how a young, black, and closeted boy from Mount Vernon, New York, grew up to be a social justice generalist. You might be asking yourself, what's that? (laughs) And that's okay, because that is what this episode is all about. Chad is someone determined to fight for and represent all vulnerable populations. As you may have guessed, we are recording this episode at home. I am in the only room I have without windows, my bathroom. (laughs) And Chad is at home spending the day with his adorable nieces. Here is where we begin our story with family almost 20 years ago. I hope you enjoy this chat and remember, do something for yourself this week. So I am from Mount Vernon. We go by money earning Vernon. Um, and my family is from Jamaica. I'm first generation American. And for all those Jamaicans out there, I'm sure you know that we are very Pentecostal. It's either like Pentecostal, Church of God, or your Seventh-day Adventist. I grew up Pentecostal. My grandma's actually a pastor. And we kind of would eat, sleep, drink religion. And my family, I'm the only boy. I have two sisters. Mm-hmm. We grew up super close, very close, because it's really hard to have friends when you are that steeped in the church. It's really hard to have friends outside of your religion and outside of church when you go like, you know, at least three or four times a week. Wow. So you were going to church outside of Sunday and I'm assuming... Saturday. It was actually Saturday. Saturday. Okay. Wow. And how how many hours were you... So church, this is the thing. On Saturdays, church went from 10 a.m., to sunset. So in the summer, that could be long. Winters, it was shorter, but it was like Sabbath broke on Mm. at sunset. And it's so different. Like I could go on and on. That could be its own podcast episode. (laughs) So I'll stop there. Unless you have more questions, I'll stop talking. No, no, that's fine. But, But the Salters, we're, you know, a family of four. My mom divorced my father when I was two. And we grew up with my mom. Sister's been my mom, my older sister, my younger sister, and I a major part of your advocacy work is within the gay community and a major part of your identity as an advocate 
is the fact that you are a Black gay man. Do you remember your first crush and how it was received within your family? <laughs> yes, I I feel like, for, and maybe this is for a lot of us, like, I don't know if there's one instance of coming out of the closet, but mm-hmm. it feels like there are many. And then you don't, you don't really think about it until like later on. But one of the first times I started to try to come out or even just be myself mm-hmm. was when I was in the first grade or so. We moved to Florida. I don't even know why we moved there for like, I want to say three months. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know what happened. I should probably ask my mom <laughs> why we did that. I used to go outside and play around with this boy. I remember he was a very like grungy tomboyish, you know, mm-hmm. playing in the dirt, whatever. And I really liked hanging out with him. I knew it felt special. And mm-hmm. so I told my older sister at that time, you know, I, I really like that boy. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I said like in a way that wasn't just like, oh, that's my friend. But like, I really like him. Mm-hmm. And she's like, you can't like boys. And if you say that, like, I'm going to tell on you. So that's that was one of my first experiences. Um, and I should say my older sister, younger sister, they are totally, totally accepting of me. Mm-hmm. But at that age, she was probably like nine, 10. And she had just been like saying what she was socialized to say, which was that that was not okay. Yeah. Um, so that was my first time. And that's kind of when I knew I would stay in the closet for a while. Mm. So how did that affect your relationships and go forward plan in high school? I would say I just, I, in high school, I focused on studies. I didn't want to see my mother struggling. Like I thought Mm -hmm. this was my chance for us to prosper. Mm -hmm. I felt like I was kind of the one that would have to make that happen. Mm. So in high school, I had one girlfriend. She also is queer Mm. and we didn't do much. I didn't like we... (laughs) which just was very PG. (laughs) We didn't do do much. And I really just focused on schoolwork. And that was Mm -hmm. kind of the good thing about, it was like a nice camouflage for me. Like you could be the kind of like scholar, the the overachiever, Mm -hmm. borderline nerd. You could do that. And it was kind of a shield from the, what was really going on that I like, I didn't need to mix up with the cool kids by like dating girls. I didn't want to like, mm, mm-hmm. I was not, I knew that that wasn't going to work. Yeah. Yeah. You got to Davidson. Um, that's where we met and became wonderful <laughs> friends. But I think what marked your experience there was your mentor who yes. was a professor of color, a queer yes. professor of color and a woman. And she really steered you and guided you into the career that you have now. So can you tell me a bit about how you met her, what what that experience was and what she meant to you? Yes. And I love telling this story because shout out to Melissa Gonzalez. She is my rock. She Ooh. is the most amazing professor, also treasure at Davidson College. Melissa Gonzalez really... I feel like she changed my life and like outside Mm -hmm. of school as well. She changed my life because we went to this very conservative, not, well, it seemed it's a liberal arts college, but it was was pretty conservative. Mm -hmm. And I kind of knew going in that I was going to come out at some point, but I was still very, very much repressing that idea. Mm -hmm. And also on top of that, there's being a person of color at that school. So it was easy to feel kind of siloed, easy to feel invisible there. Mm-hmm. And here is this, among all these white faculty, here is this queer, openly queer Cuban professor who's teaching um, Spanish and Latin American studies. 
So one of my first memories of Melissa is taking her class freshman year. This was before she was assigned. This is before I chose her as an advisor. I had her as a teacher first. Okay. I had some other guy. He was, you know, nice and all, but he just wasn't hitting it. It wasn't, Mm -hmm. it wasn't working. He, Mm -hmm. he was in theater (laughs) department. He was no shade, but he just, it was just one of those very transactional, like, Oh, this is what you're going to take this semester. Okay, good. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, one of those. So Melissa, my freshman year is, I think it was only about a month or two in, but she's talking to the class about the social life there and the night culture and the drinking culture at Davidson. And we're telling her about how everyone kind of goes down the hill. We binge drink and kind of like, there's not much more to do. Like when you think about Davidson, there was not much more to do. So there weren't any bars to go to. There were no bars, (laughs) you know, and even for us, there weren't many groups, you know, like we have to go to fraternities that probably, yeah. I don't even know if they wanted us there. You know, exactly. Like there well, wasn't much we, to do. We knew the fraternities that were accepting of kids. They, right. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She was just like, wow. So you guys just drink and whatever. And she's like, instead of binge drinking, why don't you all explore your sexuality? And everyone was just like, what the heck is this woman doing? What is she smoking? Like, why would she say this? And even I, like, I was pretty... You were like, what sexu- you Like, around sexuality, I was, right. I was conservative. I'm like, who is this woman, this professor who's now telling us to, like, explore our sexualities? That is so inappropriate. Uh-huh. And I was like, how could she ever say that in my head? And I'm like, this woman must be crazy. Fast forward a year... Mm-hmm. And I am exploring my sexuality <laughs> at Davidson. <laughs> and, and she's my advisor. Mm-hmm. She's also my work-study supervisor. And then I also went to abroad with her my junior year or the summer between my sophomore and junior year. And I came. I think she was the first person I came out to. So Melissa really shaped my life. Mm. She did. You were a Spanish major. Mm-hmm. And I can say this because we've talked about it, but right. you said to yourself okay, what am I going to do with this major? What do I care about? And how can I actually transform this, my studies into something lucrative? Right. That will also help people. You decided to go into the nonprofit sector. What was your first step? What really guided you into that industry? And how did you get your first foot in the door at the Ford Foundation? Yeah, I was, honestly, I was, I was really struggling to find out how to use my major. I was really struggling to figure out how to do that. I know that at the counseling center, they would tell you, you know, network as much as you can. Mm-hmm. And I, I did that. And I, I think, you know, it's not just about networking, but networking with the right people. And I reached out to a lot of people of color who were leaders in organizations. Some of them were Davidson alumni that didn't really work, but I connected through a family friend who knew folks at the Ford Foundation. And I just connected with someone in human resources who was actually a Black woman. Mm -hmm. And it was for a different role. At that time, they were already close to choosing a candidate and she was very forthcoming. She's just like, I want to put you in there. I think you'd be a great candidate, but they're already very close to choosing someone. Mm -hmm. And it didn't work out that round, but she said, you know, uh, I'm going to keep your resume, check in with me. You know, if you see other things open up and I kept checking the website every time I would see a new listing go up, I knew that I had to act on it fast because I think one of the things people don't realize is that jobs are super competitive in nonprofits. Mm. They are very competitive and Mm -hmm. most people are overqualified for the roles that they take in nonprofits. Mm. 
I just started to think like, instead of looking at jobs, I'm going to look at an institution. I want to work for Ford because I know it's a place that has values that align with mine. They work across so many areas of inequality. So I stayed in touch with Camilla Duggins is her name. She's an amazing woman um, who's now been promoted to director there, I believe. And I just kept on like reaching out every time I saw an opening. And finally, there was an opening on an internet freedom team to do and, and work on grant making around technology and uh, social justice. You know, she let me know, hey, I think there's a great fit for you. Can you come in for an interview? And I was one of the first people to get in front of them. And I think that made all the difference. So what were some of the most egregious ways you saw the internet being used to suppress freedom? Ooh, there are a lot of ways that I could respond to that question. I think my answer is maybe not just about the internet, but just generally one of the most dangerous things is is media. You know, if you think about media, it's kind of used to shape opinion and shape public opinion. And I think for me, one of the things that bothers me a lot is misinformation in media. I think that's a huge problem, especially around politics. It could be around culture or whatever it is, but distortion of people in media is, mm. is, is dangerous and it's been extremely dangerous for black men and women. But our portrayals in media are often manipulated so that we can be punished and criminalized. Mm-hmm. The stories about us are often shaped in a way or framed in a way that supports this idea that we are almost predisposed to criminality. And I hate that. Mm. But on our team, we worked on some on things that were a little bit more technical, dealing with issues around surveillance and privacy. And those are things that are also extremely concerning. And I think we're all we're, you know, they're they're only going to get worse. Through a Fulbright Fellowship, you looked at how social media was being used to target refugees. I think it's a fascinating project that you did. So can you tell us a bit more about your research and what sparked that interest? Yeah. So I, on the team at Ford, I loved that I was exposed to so many topics around the internet and social justice. We, you know, it felt like I could because we were supporting so many organizations in that space, I got a good sort of bird's eye view of what's important and what's salient. And a lot of exposure at Ford, but I didn't feel like I had real ownership of a project. And because we are grant makers, we don't really do things that are like too grassroots. It's very arm's length. The goal of my project was to understand how refugees use social media during resettlement. And I was interested in this topic because there is a lot of evidence that refugees are surveilled through social media. Sometimes it's from the place they're leaving because often they are in conflict with authority, you know, by oppressive regimes in different countries. A lot of them are fleeing, obviously, for you know a reason. And then they're they're moving to the you know to Canada and they're expected to prosper you know you're expected to connect you a lot of people start businesses online a lot of people use the internet to build out social capital to meet people to integrate into a country so i was really curious to see if fear of online surveillance would prevent refugees from accessing the benefits of social media part of the challenge in your full bright fellowship is that you are going to a very vulnerable population to ask them about privacy. Mm -hmm. 
and you have to build trust right. to get the research you needed. What was that process like to let them know that their identities were safe with you, that their voices were safe with you? And how was it simply doing this very emotionally intense research in a country you weren't familiar with? I think that's a great question. Fortunately, I was hosted by an institution within the University of Toronto, the Citizen Lab, which had some people I could talk to about ethics um, for research. So the Citizen Lab actually does a ton of research around human rights and technology and politics. And I should note that because I was doing work through the University of Toronto, I could not start any of this research without going through their ethics approval process. Mm. So I had to have my research proposal, the questions, everything approved by them, Mm. um, which is really good because it really helps you to think about their privacy, the privacy of the people you're working with. A lot deeper than we would think, because I think for some of us, we might think I'll go there, ask some questions and like make sure that their information is secure. Well, it's it's more than that. And I think you what you brought up is important that it's it's emotional. So you have to make sure that they know at any point they can stop at any point. Mm. They can ask me to retract any information even afterwards, unless it's like anonymous. Of course, if it's anonymous, then it'll never be connected with to them. But they need to be able to end without any questions. Their information needs to be stored. And you have to talk about how you're storing the information, when it will be deleted. So that's just on the like process step. That's one side of just getting it approved. When I was actually working with people, what I found interesting is that I had better rapport with Black refugees from Africa who took interest in the research I was doing and the purpose. And I did a presentation first. Like I didn't, I came into the the center and I asked if I could join one of their meetings. I did a presentation to explain why I'm there, Mm. what the purpose of the research is, why I think it's important and how they could get involved. I also let them know up front that like, you know, their information is completely confidential. They will receive, I, I gave gift cards because I do think that I don't think anyone should do work for free and especially mm. not refugees. You know, mm. I found that the people who like engaged the most and then even connected me to other people and they're like, oh yeah, I mean, you know, I'll send you my cousin, my whatever, my friend, they were all black. So it was actually really tough to recruit people. It's actually, that was actually the, one of the hardest parts, building trust that they would not somehow be exposed in that research. Because you're right, the whole point is to, you know, come to a country and not have to fear, you know, your identity being compromised somehow. And why is it that Toronto has such a large refugee population? Canada has taken the lead in in resettlement and saying like they have always benefited from migration. That's kind of how their country is what it is. And they stepped up during the refugee crisis, especially during the Syrian crisis and saying like we need to help in this global issue Mm. with with finding homes for people so that's just that was kind of part of their culture obviously there are issues around people who are right-wing and not into you know Mm -hmm. there's definitely that but as a whole they're very welcoming of immigrants and have a history of that how is toronto housing the refugees because i think when most maybe americans here or people here refugees We associate that with refugee camp. Right. So Canada's process is actually interesting because they actually receive permanent residents. So Canada works with the UN 
Refugee Agency, which is the UNHCR. And there's a whole process that they actually work out to decide which refugees to bring in and how many. So they're already kind of assigned before they arrive to Canada. And once they arrive, they're given permanent residence. So they're technically not even refugees. Mm -hmm. They're considered permanent residents. That's, this is one process, by the way. So they come in, they work with the refugee centers and other placement centers that actually find housing. Mm -hmm. So they're not in camps. Once they get there, they're literally like trying to integrate. Mm -hmm. So those are people who come in and get permanent residence. That is a very different system than what we have. Yeah. Wow. Very different. Amazing. Were there platforms that refugees were using more than others? So of the refugees that I interviewed, I found that they used Facebook and Twitter a lot. In my conversations, Twitter was kind of the way that you get quick information that was kind of decentralized. So the other reason why social media is so important is because unlike traditional news, which is often propaganda and kind of filtered through institutions before it gets to people. They felt like Twitter was decentralized enough for them to get mm. accurate information, especially when they were back home. They were like, there were a lot of um, government maybe shutdowns and things that they needed to learn about. And they, they couldn't trust most news, but they could trust Twitter. And that's where other independent wow. journalists had a platform. And so people I spoke to use Twitter. And then they also use LinkedIn, which I actually found completely mind boggling because, and which I didn't expect because a lot of the refugees I spoke with were trying to avoid being tracked in their new in, in Canada, especially if they left because they were say in conflict with government. They were very careful of the information they shared. Some even talked about how they might even use false names if they needed to. But they felt like on LinkedIn they could not do that. On LinkedIn they had to keep the accurate information, that including even a picture. So that was one of the things that came out of the research that I actually wanted to explore more is how and if refugees can still safely use things like LinkedIn, and if that isn't, you know, if there aren't consequences to that. Of all social media platforms, LinkedIn kind of has all of your information, your, your work history, your location there. So, you, you know, it's like either use it and put fake information, use it, put real information or don't use it. And I was very surprised that they use it and put accurate information. You understood how detrimental it can be to not bring your authentic self to the table. Mm -hmm. And you are at a point in your life where, look, honey, if you don't like it, you could get out. <laughs> and that includes your work environment. How have you seen bringing your truth, your, your authenticity to the table benefit the groups you're in, benefit the work you're doing and benefit mm. the people in your life? I think that's a really good question. And I always try to make these things like not about myself. Like when I think about why it's important for me to bring my authentic self to work, it's because it makes me a better leader. I think it makes you do your work that's supposed to help other people better. Mm. So I am very proud to talk about being LGBTQ plus at work, you know, like part of that community at work. Because I actually want to make sure that we're always including the most vulnerable groups in our work. So like even, for example, you know, now I'm doing consulting with an organization that was looking for organizations to support. And I think the immediate reaction for a lot of people is like, 
we need to support Black Lives Matter by like mm-hmm. funding important organizations and they're all doing great work. But then I'm like, yeah, we need to do that. But we also need to focus on like Black trans people mm-hmm. who are also being disproportionately affected and also need funding and are underfunded. Most mm-hmm. LGBTQ organizations, especially the ones that work with Black trans people are underfunded. So they know that they can like look to me for that information. And I'm happy to do that in those instances and be like, no, like let's work with the Marsha P. Johnson Institute. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's work with the uh, Audrey Lord program Mm -hmm. because otherwise I think there are a lot of, there's a lot of work that would be kind of left behind. So I think that's the important thing about diversity in the workplace is that it gives, it makes you a stronger, smarter organization and you, You don't miss as many opportunities. So my uh, final question for you, anyone, whether they're looking for a career change or they're starting their career, what advice would you give them if they are interested in the nonprofit sector? Advice I would give someone, find an institution that you really care about. It's really easy to get sucked into all the job roles and whatnot, but I start with the institution. Mm. What's an organization that has core values that I care about, that has a mission I care about? And then I start to look within there at roles that are a good fit. So that's one thing. The other thing is to go to events. You know, nonprofits are mostly like, I feel like everyone networks. That's kind of how it works. You usually are part of this ecosystem of programs and other organizations that are doing impactful work. Mm -hmm. Go to events, meet people. Those are really the ones that can flag your resume. Those are people who can like push you forward. And then I think for a lot of people who don't come from money, who want to be in the nonprofit, there are a lot of sacrifices. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to be kind of bitter about some of that because you want to make a difference. At the same time, it's like, well, where's what is my future going to look like? Like, will mm-hmm. I be able to afford even living in the city that I work in? Mm-hmm. Will I have to share an apartment for the you know, share an apartment with three other people for the rest of my foreseeable future. You know, Mm -hmm. like where I think those are the things that we have to grapple with in nonprofit is like the quality of life and then the the work and satisfaction. Is it worth Mm -hmm. the squeeze? And for a lot of us, we do feel like it's worth the squeeze. We'll do it because it's it's fulfilling. But that is a sacrifice. Mm -hmm. You don't have to start within a nonprofit. You can get your footing in a place that pays well, where you can make some money and those skills will transfer and you can even start higher than you would in a nonprofit. So like, I think working your way up in a nonprofit is tough and there are ways around that. And one way is by coming in with a skill set and some like business knowledge. I'm really happy you took the time to just talk to me about your work and help us get a better understanding of what the nonprofit field looks like. It's the field that seems so ideal. It's the field that many of us go into when we don't know how else to help, Mm. but it still takes a lot of connections and networking Mm -hmm. to even get our foot in the door there. Absolutely. So your story of banging down the door until they had a spot for you, I hope that inspires people to not give up. And can people Thank reach you. out to you if they have any questions? Absolutely. My name is Chad Salter. You can look me up on LinkedIn and please, any questions, anything at all. I'm here. And thank you, Taylor, for hosting me. Also for shedding light on this really important topic, which is, you know, our careers. Oh, thank you, Chad. I am. Thank you, Chad. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. Well, I will let you go. I hope you enjoy the rest of your weekend. Hey guys, thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed that episode, please do me a huge favor and rate, review, and subscribe. Also, if you have any questions or comments about the show, please feel free to hit me up at the Podcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. And until then, have a wonderful week and I'll see you next time. Bye.